Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here. I'm a content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm going to have to prefer not to say podcast, and my expertise on the show is no-budget cinema. I'm Rachel. I also write for Films Patel, and I love lost film, international movies, and classic Hollywood. And if I sound gorgeous and sultry like Lauren Bacall, it's because I have a cold, so I apologize. My name is Andreas. I'm the creator and uh, head editor, writer, you name it, over at Films Fatale. I love international cinema, art house cinema, a little bit of everything in between. And uh, you may notice that we've had a bit of a blackout here. And I, uh, I do, we do apologize. Uh, we've had a series of tech issues, whether it's my laptop biting the dust or uh, whatever going on, but we are Happy to be back. Uh, Cinephilia waits for no one. And um, even though we're recording this and releasing this when we are, we actually watched our films like the cinephiles and we are a very, very long eternity ago. In case you need a refresher as to what this series is, uh, fear not, I've got you covered. This is uh, the K-Cuts monthly cinematic smorgasbord. So what we do is basically recommend a film that the other co-host has never seen. So as you heard in our intros, we have a little bit of, you know, variety as to what we like, but we also have a lot of crossover as well. So we try to introduce a new film or an older film, a classic to the other co-host, and we report our findings. Additionally, we save a film that all three of us have yet to see uh, that previous month for the end of the episode. And the film that we did collectively is uh, Stephen Elliott's uh, queer classic, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. I know it's a little bit late, but we were celebrating Pride Month uh, a little bit with with this pick. But fear not, uh, Pride should not be be contained in just one sole month. So uh, what's what's the damage, right? we, We will still celebrate queer cinema whenever and wherever. So... Uh, we will get to that, but first off, we should probably get to our individual picks. Uh, who got recommended what, and what are their findings? I will actually go last for mine, because I feel like mine uh, thematically would make the most sense, given what our collective pick is. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, in case you don't know. So, who would like to go first? first. I'll go first. Okay, James, I'll fight you for it. No, no, you go first. Alrighty, uh, so I was assigned the 1976 classic Network. And? I really enjoyed it. This film, for those who don't know, basically it's a film about a news reporter who's about to be let go, and on his last night, or what he thought would be his last night, he kind of goes on this rant and then also mentions he's going to commit suicide on the air. He's obviously stopped, of course, but then a light bulb goes off in the heads of the network executives because his ranting resonates with people. So it kind of just snowballs into this bizarre programming of shows centered around him where it's just he's just kind of ranting all the time and it kind of draws people in because they can relate to it. And it really kind of there's a lot of stuff talked about if you look in retrospect to what is going on in the world now, it kind of like, wow, they kind of almost predicted a lot of stuff but i think the one thing that it does that it wouldn't have predicted was it kind of shows what the landscape of social media is now because even now network television isn't for you know there isn't any humanity or anything really to relate to in any sort of legitimate sense that isn't kind of 
it's kind of sterilized on network television, but social media is completely unfiltered. So what we're seeing in this movie is kind of like what we're seeing on like any one of the platforms that you see nowadays. And yeah, it's just, it's so interesting to see this. And then there's also kind of this other storyline with like, you know, one of the people at the network who's obsessing over what's going on with the network in the programming. And yeah, I don't know. It's just a really interesting movie. It's one of those movies that I think it shows that all you really need is a good screenplay for a movie to be good, because this is one of the great screenplays. It really is. One thing is that I think Howard Beale was meant to be taken a lot less seriously when the film came out. I think it was really meant to be more of a comedy. And now I just watch him and I'm kind of like, he's right. And everything is sad. Well, it's a satire, and I think that's what's important. Yeah. It's like right in the middle of being a comedy, but also having something to say. And there are two key reasons why this works so well. The director, Sidney Lumet, this is the greatest thing he's ever done, but Sidney Lumet's always had like a very, um, kind of like a sharp, you know, like a sharpness to what he's saying. If you look like 12 Angry Men, which was like a film made in, during the Hollywood Code, but even then it's still very biting. Um, and his latter material for sure. But then you also have Patty Shaevsky, which you bring up the screenplay as one of the all-time greatest screenplays ever made. And he always had something uh, very critical to say about society and the working class person and um, the elite, for instance. So Network was taken as like a big joke when it first came out. And people said, wow, this, like, this isn't going to win any Oscars outside of like maybe it's acting and screenplay, which it did. Because this is just a big farce, but I had a, I had fun watching it. Now, now it's one of the most prophetic films of all time. Yeah, it's actually terrifying. Also, can you believe they've lost to Rocky? Like, come on. Don't even remind me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't even remind me. But like network, you, you know, you touched upon something really interesting there when you said social media, James. Because uh, that's not that's an angle I didn't I didn't even consider. Um, what network predicts is the exploitation of others for hot news and, you know, like buzzworthy topics. And that was very relative for like trashy television, um, exploitational news and like, you know, bias news, all sorts of stuff. But like now you've got a, you've got a very good point because, um, a lot of people, their, uh, sanity and their mental health is, and their physical well-being is jeopardized for what we call content and network yet again predicted that. Yeah. I think it's just, I kind of looked at it. It was like, they had something to kind of hook people in with these people. It's like, you know, they're trying to like, Oh, you relate to them. This is why we get the numbers. But now it's, there is a legitimate desire to watch people that you identify with. And that's what we see all the time now. And it's, you know, we're connected more than ever, but you know, the powers that be can't pull the strings like in networks case, especially with that ending. That ending was probably one of my favorite endings ever. I that again, I I like movies that have endings like that just because it's like, well, that happened. Yeah, you come out of it feeling like you've kind of been hit by a bus a little. Yeah, and you know, you brought up Howard Beale, Rachel, and um, the fact that uh, he's being uh, victim shamed, basically like uh, being made out to be this this crazy person when really like you said, a lot of what he says has a lot of credence to it. The Ned, the Ned Beatty um, monologue, which happens maybe like two thirds through the film. And like, he was nominated just for like this one monologue. Um, that's how good it is. It's one of the greatest of all time is astonishingly accurate. I think it's already gone down as like um, one of the most important monologues up there with Charlie Chaplin's in um, the great dictator. 
Uh, things that hit a little bit too close to home are still really relevant, if in fact probably more so now because people just flat out have not listened. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a fun time. It's a frightening time. Exactly. Overall, it's a thumbs up for me. Excellent. I'm really glad you enjoyed it because I felt it would appeal to you. All right. Well, uh, I guess I'd better go next. Uh, do you have anything more to say about Network First? I do not. Okay. Well, I was given Alex Garland's Annihilation, which is a sort of sci-fi psychodrama. It's really hard to categorize, but um, it's a very opaque film. But I greatly enjoyed it. And the first word that comes to mind with this movie is visceral. It really gets into the goriness of the human body and sort of what makes us vulnerable. And uh, it sounds like a cheap, schlocky horror film when I describe it, but it's really not because it really dives into these characters' motivations and into sort of what connects them and what makes us all human. It's Natalie Portman as a scientist going to investigate this phenomenon that nobody really comes back from and nobody comes back right from. And we see this sort of parallel world where what is natural can become destructive. And now a lot of people... I've I looked into a lot of this online, and there's a lot of arguing over what this movie's supposed to mean. Some people suggest cancer, some people suggest disease. Personally, I just see it as a view of what rots us from the inside, whether that's metaphorical or physical, and how your past and your experiences and your exposures can all combine together to degrade you, essentially. But it's got a very strong cast, and like I said, this really dense screenplay that and concept that you kind of have to unpick. And I'm still not totally sure what to think of it, but it was definitely worthwhile viewing. And Andreas has said repeatedly that I should see it twice and I haven't gotten around to it, but I think I really should. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's tough to see things once with our work schedules. I get it. But like, um, I don't even know how many times I've seen this now. Um, at least over 10. Um, it's not your all time tapes. Uh, when it comes to like 21st century science fiction films, yes, absolutely. Um, I think so far it's the best thing Alex Garland has directed, and he's done some really good stuff. Okay, Men wasn't great, but uh, he also did Ex Machina, which is important. Um, I've done my homework, and I've actually read the original novel by Jeff Vandermeer. It's very different, and um, I feel like in that one it's more the acceptance of like a new sort of ecosystem and a new reality. Whereas with this mm -hmm. film, you hit the nail on the head. Is it cancer? Is it depression? Is it addiction? It can literally be anything. And that's what the entire troop of women going into this uh, other reality called the shimmer, which, you know, you brought up, um, that's what they all represent. So uh, if you haven't seen the film, I'm not going to like spoil, but each different party member has a different background, whether it's science or the military, but they also have um, their own personal battles, let's say, like their own personal demons that they are, that they're coping with. So uh, this idea of the destruction from within, you know, it's also interesting because it's like, is the shimmer really a bad thing? Are these human beings going into it that, like the Shimmer's version of cancerous cells killing it from the inside. You know, there's so many interesting angles to take from this. And, you know, the first time I saw yeah. it, I was, yeah. Now that you mention it, it does sort of challenge the human-centric vision of the environment. 
it's uh, I think that was more what the book was doing, but like Alex Garland still like targets it a little bit, like this idea of what makes an ecosystem and what makes inhabitants. Um, but Garland's version is so much more in ways it's it's exceptionally postmodern. So one of my favorite elements of the film, and I wonder if you picked up on this. I'm hoping that you did because it's one of my favorite parts about it. Not to be redundant. The score by uh, Jeff Burrow of Portishead fame and Ben Salisbury. Uh, the score itself, like the film and its narrative structure, starts off traditional, like this, you know, this guitar, this acoustic guitar, and it slowly deteriorates into an abstract, ambient, droning electronic score. Like it, it self implodes, and the film itself does so as well. And I think it's just one of the most beautiful aesthetic things I've seen in a, in a film in a very long time. Like you don't see a lot of films that self implode. Yeah. And I think what makes this movie so appealing is that you really can make whatever interpretation you want out of it. Yeah. I, I agree with that because, you know, without spoiling the film, one of the last things you hear in context is, you know, it defines us. It's inside us. You make of it what you want, whatever the shimmer or the entity or whatever, without giving too much away, whatever you want it to be. It's reflecting your views and yourself into it. Yeah. And I think films like that, you know, that's why they become mainstays because they resonate. Like, I think everybody has, by the time they reach a certain age, has had the kind of experiences the characters in these films have, even though they may vary between people. Everybody can take something from it. Absolutely. And one final note about this is uh, I just felt like it was important to, that we touch upon it. Uh, this is obviously heavily influenced by Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker, also a film about people entering an area and heading towards a zone and slowly losing their minds. Uh, the film itself also slowly implodes in its own different way. Um, so if you're into Annihilation, uh, as much as I love Annihilation, Stalker did it first and kind of better. But like Annihilation, I still think is a masterpiece. And it's not it doesn't depend on this other film. It just is an offshoot idea about it. Like the way Brazil is with 1984 by George Orwell, for instance, it it's not a ripoff. It's just a deviation and a reimagination of what, what was done perfectly before. Why, re, why redo it instead of reinvent it? So. I guess that's a question we're going to be asking fairly imminently. Uh, I'm pretty much wrapped up in Annihilation, but I really enjoyed it, and I'm glad you recommended it. But uh, I'm happy because it it doesn't really seem like a Rachel pick. Is like you like classic cinema, you love like awards worthy stuff. I just felt like it would have been like really um, out there to recommend. So I'm happy that it worked. <laughs> well, I'm recommending you something out there, so we'll see how that goes later in the episode. Ah, oh, damn! Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of remakes and deviations and um, updates on material, what did you get assigned this month? Alrighty, so uh, for Pride Month, uh, James, James, you love double features. You love the idea of pairing things together. So um, to go alongside uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, uh, typically this film is always brought up in conversation with that one. Um, and I could see why. Movies. Oh, yeah, exactly. There's like a lot of common ground. That's uh, Bibin Kidron's uh, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Numar. Uh, this is a road film um, involving three drag queens who uh, two of them have won a contest and they're bringing uh, an up-and-comer drag queen uh, you know, along for the ride. 
when they get stuck in a, you know, kind of rundown, you know, heart of America, bigoted area of the states. But that doesn't stop them, does it? No, everything is still fabulous. James, why did you recommend me this? I recommended it primarily because I wanted to assign both that and Priscilla, Priscilla being the collective pick, obviously. But I picked it because it's 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 very much a product of its time. And it's 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 a very silly film, but I think it's really interesting given the cast, because you have John Leguizamo, Wesley Snipes, and Patrick Swayze playing drag queens. Splendidly. On paper, it's like, huh? <laughs> like you like you don't really think about it like that like that works. Like on paper, it's like that just doesn't work. But there's something about it that works, especially it's like, you know, Wesley Sipes and Patrick Swayze being like these manly men, you know, very masculine characters. And now they're playing these very vulnerable people who, you know, it's I don't know. It's also, I think, how they talk about their performances in the film, because like I've seen like clips of and Red Art Girls where uh, Wesley Snipes and um John Lewis, I won't say like they are so they're so proud of these roles. Like John Lewis, I almost said this is the most free he's ever felt acting. But I think another reason I picked it was because I think it's an important film. I mean, it has its flaws, but I think the way it treats drag queens in the queer community. I mean, obviously, there's people who I mean, there are you know, there's an antagonist in the film, a couple of them, I should say, but there are people who are very accepting of them. And I think it's a step in the right direction of, hey, these are people we should be caring for instead of being nefarious towards. And it really and this kind was of showed mid nineties too. Yeah, and that was the other thing was like it seemed very forward thinking. Even the choice of, you know, the the kind of enemies in the film aren't that bad. They're very careful on how they approach it. Like the um, oh, what's his name? Who's the actor that plays the? The police officer. I can't remember. Oh, he passed Chris away Penn. in recent years. Yes. Um, it, it's very interesting because because he's trying to like out them and he's making a bigger deal of what it, of what it is. He in the screenplay he chooses where he calls them perverts. And I'm like, I'm so glad they decided not to use slurs in this. I mean, one, it's, a, it's supposed to be like a you know, kind of more toned-down comedy, but I was like, they take very good steps into not being offensive, especially the characters themselves. Like, this could have been very, very badly satired but there's an authenticity to these characters that is, i don't think that you would have gotten at that time or prior had this film not come along or priscilla as we're going to talk about later on but yeah it's also i think it's just it's a fun film and that's what i think we as cinephiles need sometimes like this is just like it's a corny 90s comedy and i just thought like it's fun but it's something that's so impactful especially given what's going on nowadays. So that that's kind of why I picked it. And I, I, I figured you might get a kick out of it just like from the cast alone. Yeah. And I've got to say, especially uh, Swayze really stood out to me because I only really knew him well from Dirty Dancing. And I mean, that's a fun role, but it's not a huge acting showcase like this. You did a great job. Oh yeah. I have to agree with that. Uh, you know, I will just preface this by saying I preferred Priscilla Queen of the Desert overall, but if I had to pick one performance that like shined between the two films, a lot of people apparently were singling out Patrick Swayze and wondering why he wasn't being nominated for an Academy Award, you know, come award season. Now, I think the film itself 
maybe he doesn't scream Oscars or anything like that during the award season. Um, but Patrick Swayze himself, I feel like not just great, but at all of the leads and both of these films, they're very tasteful and understanding and not trying to embody a caricature. They're trying to be people. And I feel like that's what's very important about the acting in both of these films, but especially in a film like this, which is a lot more comedic and it would lend itself to a lot more satirization and, uh, and parody. Yeah. It's, it's kind of wild to think <laughs> how long ago this was released because it's like this, that that's a film I think could work very well right now. But the fact that he did it so long ago was, yeah, I don't know. I th- I think it's, I think it's good that there are people who take the time to craft stories like that. And that a studio like greenlit that. I mean, honestly, it's like, you know, I, I could imagine the uproar nowadays because it's like, you know, it seems like there wasn't really a lot of tension when this came out. But now if something like this were to come out, you could tell there's a certain group of people who would probably be like up in arms over it. I don't know. The 90s was just a different time. And there have been so many great strides, and yet somehow people still seem to be going backwards. And I just don't get it. I don't get why you would spend your energy being unkind to other people. I just don't. I don't know. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you. At the same time, uh, what I feel like was supported in the 80s and 90s was that these sort of stories were being told. But now that we're like heading in the right direction, to your point, James, I think the idea is more, now that we're like, like, let's no longer pretend to be accepting. Let's actually provide voices to those that, you know, need to speak. And I think that's what the whole conversation is. It's more, um, if we're going to have gay or, transge- or transgender characters, let's hire the people that live these lives. And I think that's kind of where it is. I'm not saying that um, anybody with any background can't act as, you know, somebody else. But I feel like that's the... Um, the focus is, you know, think about how many decades uh, straight cisgendered people were playing, you know, other identities. You know, we've had that. Let's, uh, you know, there are a lot of people, you know, of the LGBTQ plus community, you know, they want to work and, you know, they can. Now they can. They're you know, they're actually being accepted in Hollywood, uh, which is nice. Um, having said that, we needed stuff like this back in the day. Um, especially, and this is interesting and I forgot this until now, I actually kind of did a triple feature that week. I went to go see, but I'm a cheerleader at the Tiffa Lightbox for the first time. And that's a very similar sort of instance, but that actually did have queer actors in it. Like, um, obviously Claire Duvall comes to mind and, uh, uh, RuPaul Charles himself was in it as well, playing straight, which I think is hilarious casting. Um, but in general, these are films like, uh, Tu Wong Fu. Um, that maybe weren't beloved upon release, but are like kind of being given their flowers now. Yeah, they're a little bit more lighthearted, but they're saying some pretty serious stuff. And I feel like that's why, um, like, Tuong Fu might not be like my favorite film of all time or my favorite to have this conversation, but I had fun with it. I thought it was at least fun and uh, a, a warmer side to this conversation, like, but I'm a cheerleader, which was necessary because. You sometimes can't convey stuff with ang- with anger or hate. Sometimes you have to do it with a hug. Also, I'd like to uh, give props to the cast for the preparation because, like, I read interviews where they're saying they they were actually went to like really famous big drag clubs and actually like worked like shadowed real drag queens for this role. 
And speaking of shadows, it's now we will segue over into our collective pick, um, where Tuong Fu, unfortunately, I guess because of circumstance and release, stood in the shadow of the adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the entire time that Tuong Fu was released. So um, what did we think of this Australian, more dramatic, more intense, more depressing version of a similar story? I will say it is odd that we do so often get two movies with very similar premises in the same year. Like we remember that time we had two Truman Capotes at once that that was odd. That's just <laughs> yep. one quick note. I will say before we get into the discussion of the movie, this was actually a very big deal for the Australian film industry on the international stage because it came at roughly the same time as films like Strictly Ballroom and Muriel's Wedding that had kind of a quirky take on things and an unusual sense of humor. And so Australian cinema really got this reputation through this trend at the time. And Priscilla was right there as part of it. So really, uh, I guess Australia should really thank this movie for helping out a bit. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it had a lot of um, up or not up and comers. It had one or two up and comers like Guy Pierce, who was relatively unknown at the time. Hugo Weaving was like a little bit better known, but then like you had like Terrence a, a Terrence Stamp, who's like a veteran at the, even at this point, who was brilliant in this film. So what separates it a little bit more is that you have three drag queens of Tu Wong Fu, and this, you have two drag queens, but one of them's actually a transgender woman, and that's the Terrence Stamp character, and I feel like that um, that, that slight difference alone, amongst many other things, added so much narrative weight and commentary to what Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, was doing. I thought this movie was absolutely amazing. Yes. I, I think it like honestly, it's it's probably one. Of, I would even consider it as probably one of the greatest films of all time. Wow. Also, yeah. Well, I think it's just like there was something about it. It just, I don't know. It just hit me in, in a way that I didn't expect it to. Because I was like, okay, first of all, the cast kind of threw me off. I was like, hold on, who's in this movie? Like it was like Tuong Fu. It was like I, I have to watch this, and then to see how they pulled this off was just like, I, I mean, Terrence Stamp obviously was already basically a legend at that point but hugo weaving and guy pierce like especially like early in their career like man i can see why they went far it's very just the way this story is composed it doesn't miss a beat on anything and it's constantly like you're you're constantly wanting to know okay what happens next where is this going to lead to and then once you actually start to finally get to the destination and like some other things are revealed it's like wow this is just i don't know i i don't know Movies like that don't come around that often. And yet, even though the movie's composed, the characters feel messy in a good way, very human. They make bad decisions sometimes. They're not always very nice. They they really feel fully realized, and that's rare in a film. Absolutely. And another aspect that I liked, um, in uh, Tuong Fu, and there's nothing wrong with this, they were almost always in costume in Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Um, the two drag queens specifically, uh, you saw them not in drag for at least the majority of the film. And yet, um, I feel like a lot of, uh, not just uh, LGBTQ plus films, but like in general, like transformative performances, uh, you know, people hide behind costumes and that sort of stuff. No, I feel like there was like a real understanding as to who these people are as people and how they function, you know, via identity as opposed to, 
cost you. But needless to say, and this is an interesting tidbit that I'm sure you found out, Rachel, uh, when we researched this, the costume design is, from what I can tell, or if I'm remembering this correctly, the last time a film won Best Costume Design at the Oscars for a film that's not like a distant period piece that's like, you know, X amount of years old. Like it's like a more contemporary film. Yeah. Yeah. With the exception of Black Panther, I guess. Oh, oh, right. The other, sorry, the other, uh, exactly. The other part of it is like uh, sci-fi or whatever, like something rooted in reality. But yeah, I forgot about that little tidbit. See, you did know. (laughs) But yeah. um, I also think this film, Tuong Fu, kind of tried to be it tried to tie things up a little bit more neatly and i think that priscilla approached it with a less well life is kind of unresolved sort of idea and that i think was effective Fu was very hollywood yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree more with both of you um i love us like if uh, listeners at home if you're not too familiar with australian cinema uh, Australian cinema might be like top 10 greatest international cinema circuits, maybe at like 10, nine or eight, but it's up there. Like Australian. Tragically oh yeah. Like there's a lot of great stuff over there. So part of that is because in general, I don't know about the TV with all the, uh, the soap opera stuff, but like um, cinema wise, Australian cinema is like very uncompromised. And you could see that in a film like adventures of Priscilla queen of the desert. You know, this is a totally different tangent, but uh, it's been argued many times that the essential tenet of Canadian literature and Canadian fiction is survival because we've had to deal with an extremely dangerous and annoying climate our entire existence. And I wonder if Australia is maybe a little similar, just with a different type of climate and danger. And that's why it is so uncompromising. That was just a thought that popped into my head. You're absolutely on the money what's what what is one of the most revered australian films of all time it's walkabout that's literally about survival so there you go i mean and you could look at so many others like picnic a hanging rock and even to an extent priscilla queen of the deserts about survival whether it's in society or in literally the titular desert so exactly you're absolutely on the money there anyway this is definitely a an entry that belongs in the australian canon Oh yeah, I mean, I mean, and I don't know about the greatest film of all time, but like if we're talking about some of the greatest Australian films, you can't help but like discuss it. You have to; it has to be mentioned. Oh, and apparently, I think um, there was some award show where someone on red carpet was, or on the carpet was asking people what their favorite movies are. I think Maya Hawk said that this was one of her favorite movies. She's got taste. Yeah, good job, Maya. Also, I'm so glad I finally got to do this. I've been waiting. I'm pretty sure like a full year at this point to assign to Wong Fu and Priscilla together. Well, uh, the K-Cut is where dreams come true and are about to come true again. We're about to unveil what each co-host and all three of us are going to be watching for the month of July. You know, we kind of lost a week here, but we'll still make it work. But before we do that, uh, I feel like our listeners at home, given the month absence, need some uh, some uh, navigational skills as to how they could find us again. Rachel. Your assistance. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K Cut. And last week, we just posted we posted an interview with a very fine filmmaker named Alejandro 
Pereira Doria Medina. So check out last week's episode if you want to get some interesting films and film discussion going on. But in the meantime, we're going to find out our cinematic smorgasbord picks for this month. Absolutely. But yes, please do check out that that episode. It's like an hour long. Rachel here did a fantastic job um, with her first interview for the K-Cut. Um, you know, it's just two cinephiles just discussing Bolivia uh, and geographical experts, I might add, because, you know, Rachel, you, you're an expert in that field as well. Um, discussing Bolivia, Terrence Malick, all all things cinematic, poetic and beautiful. So uh, please do listen to it. It'll make your drive home in this heat a lot more tolerable. All right. Who wants to discover their pick first? What am I getting? Okay. So we know that Oppenheimer is around the corner, which is about three hours. But the bigger film, Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flowers Moon, that's four hours. And I prepared you for this by uh, giving you um, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai, which is like three and a half hours, correct? Yes. So my... <laughs> my my thinking was um why don't i okay why don't i save you from like the long ass movies instead i'll give you something a lot shorter so uh you know i've tortured you enough with really long behemoth films whether it's that or women on the verge or sorry um a woman under the, under the influence i've given you a lot Jean of Demand. Oh God, yeah, I forgot I gave you that. Yeah, so I gave you Sean Dealman. Yeah, so uh, I've given you a lot of lengthy films, but instead, um, somebody else is releasing a movie this year. That's Jonathan Glazer, and he hasn't released anything since uh, Under the Skin, and that's what I'm going to be recommending to you this month: jo- Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer, starring Scarlett Johansson in her magnum opus of a performance. I think uh, Mika Levy's score is one of the greatest you'll ever hear. It's like um an industrial eerie horror soundtrack but like not many films compete with it and this was mika levy's first score for like an official feature film so like just knocked it out of the park jonathan glazer is going to be um uh he he did premiere at Cannes already uh he premiered with um the zone of interest which i think is going to be talked about a lot during award season and i'm sure you're gonna have to watch it if we're doing those academy awards nominations so let's prep you up a little bit. Here is uh, Under the Skin, one of the, uh, you know, I recommended Annihilation. Under the Skin's one of the other greatest sci-fis of the 21st century. Cool. I've been I've been meaning to watch. Like, I intended to watch it when it came out. I just didn't. It's 10 years old now. It's come around. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, 10 years old, considering the festival circuit. I don't know. Like, I think it got released in 2014, you know domestically but uh yes it's it's 10 years old officially so sorry <laughs> it's uh, better late than never though okay uh what am i getting rachel well speaking of movies that are old you know uh shrek is actually old enough that there are people on these earth whose parents were born after the release of shrek if you can believe it uh, but i've i've seen shrek though rachel i mean if that's where you're getting at <laughs> yeah you you didn't live under a rock in 2001 so you saw shrek but, <laughs> yes i um, did yeah, well, it turns out that uh, Shrek is the internet's favorite movie, and so they decided to do a remake. And uh, it, it, I will not spoil how it goes, but I am assigning you Shrek Retold, the YouTube sensation. And yes, it is on YouTube. It is about an hour and a half long, about the same length as the movie, and it is wild, and I cannot wait to hear what you think of it. What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> Hang on, yeah, like just give me a second. What? Okay, so what is this Shrek... 
the Shrek retold. A retold. I, I couldn't even remember. Okay, what? Okay, there it is. It's on YouTube. Okay, wow. Okay, this. You've seen every <laughs> movie, so I just decided to go really weird. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I mean, damn. Uh, yeah, this looks. This okay. I I don't. I, I I'm at a loss for words. Um, Two hundred creators worked on this thing. Wow. Uh, sure. I'm gonna go. You know what? I'm gonna stop reading. I'm gonna go in blindly. This looks like uh, this looks like a wild ride. Yes, I, I wish you could have seen me and my partner watching this as our eyes got like bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh my god. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. All right, let's do Shrek retold. Yes. And James, even though it's not your assignment, I think that you would be simultaneously uh, confused and uh, thrilled by it. So you should watch it too. Oh, I'm, I'm, I plan on it. It sounds wild. Okay. okay. Well, I guess that leaves me. Ah, uh, yes. So for your pick this time, I decided to give you a film that's actually celebrating its 20th anniversary sh- this year. Dang, we're getting old, guys. I know. <laughs> right? <laughs> but I'm going to be assigning you Gus Van Sant's 2003 Palme d'Or winning by unanimous vote Magnum Opus Elephant. Yes, I've heard all about this one and how intense it is, and I'm a little nervous to watch it, but also, like, ever since I heard about it, I knew it had to be well done, so this is going to be a tough go, but I'm glad you assigned it. I think it's It's, important. It's a tough movie. It is definitely a tough watch. I'm one of those crazy people who have no problem rewatching it, but it's one of those movies where you just kind of, I don't know. It leaves you empty inside in like a good and bad way, if that makes sense. I know what you mean. Okay, well, I guess that's the pick I'm with, and I will track that down. And in the meantime, I guess it's my turn to do the collective. And so I went a little bit differently and picked something lighthearted. And for some reason, I'm really stuck on collective picks from the late 60s and early 70s. And so we're going to go with the 1969 comedy classic, If It's Tuesday, This Must Be Belgium, which has a heck of a cast that is so long that I cannot include everybody in this episode because it would be very, very long. But it's about a package tour of Europe of the type that was very common in this era. And it was so fast that you rarely spent more than a day or two in each city. So... Uh, my mom went on one of these in the 70s, and she always calls it her, if it's Tuesday, this must be Belgium trip. <laughs> All righty. I mean, we've got, wow. Uh, I mean, we've had very eclectic selections before, but this has to be up there as one of the most. We've got, um, all right. I mean, I mean, it's a good opportunity to recap as we sign off. Uh, in case you missed it at home for the month of July, we'll be watching what a wide array of films. We've got Shrek Retold, which is an animated, a flash animated fan film. Uh, I'm so excited for this. We've got Under the Skin, Jonathan Glazer's eerie sci-fi uh, depiction of the human experience. Um, we have Gus Van Sant's answer to the uh, tragic rise in school shootings, uh, Elephant. Uh, there's a trigger warning there. Just be careful with this film. It's a little challenging, but it is considered uh, an indie opus, and it won the Palm d'Or as well. And finally, we've got a star-studded satire. If it's Tuesday, if it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium. So you've got your work cut out for you. And you have, if you haven't checked out the episode, if you haven't checked out the films of this episode either, uh, be sure to do so. I think we have given each film we were given a glowing endorsement. So. 
that was the K-Cut. Thank you so much for listening. We are now going into the L-Cut.